First Fruits of Zion teaches that the whole Bible, including the Law of Moses, that is the Torah given to the Jewish people, has relevance and practical application for Gentile Christians. Some Messianic Jews disagree. They argue that the Torah is for Jews only. Today's guests, FFOZ's senior educator Aaron Eby and director of Torah Club Damian Eisner are here to challenge the idea that the Torah has nothing to say to Gentiles. Put your hand and mind together We will walk in harmony Let me introduce you to my teacher The rabbi from the Galilee You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Aaron and Damien. How are you guys doing today? Very well, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Always excited. You do a tremendous job on these, Jacob, so it's nice to be sitting in the room with you today. Well, thanks for saying so. Your immense pile of duties has precluded your joining us as, uh, or continuing to join us as co-host, but we do try to rope you in when we can. <laughs> Happy to be roped. And uh, of course, everybody loves Aaron because he knows everything and he's such such a good explainer. So we're excited to to dig in. You know, if you, you keep on saying stuff like that, people will have way too high of expectations of me. <laughs> It's not really fair. That's the only reason I came back on the podcast is because you were going to be here. And I knew that, you know, I, I could just like <laughs> smile and you could talk and it would be it'd be fine. <laughs> I, I guess it, compared to me, it seems like, you know, everything. So it's, a, it's a, we know different things. That's key. For our subject matter today, we'll consider you an expert witness. Uh, okay. So as you guys know, and, and maybe a first-time listener would not know, First Fruits of Zion is a Messianic Jewish teaching organization. But, you know, Messianic Judaism is not gigantic, like in numbers-wise, but it's a big theological tent. So people have disagreements, and some people uh, disagree with us. Some Messianic Jews disagree with us. And mostly it tends to be about the role of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses, in the life of a disciple of Jesus who is not Jewish, a Gentile disciple of Yeshua. And a few people have gone so far as to say that we are not even really part of the Messianic Jewish movement. We're not part of Messianic Judaism. Instead, we, we fall into a different category, which is another big tent that's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And since you guys are both Messianic Jews, um, so, which one would think would be enough to classify you as being part of Messianic Judaism. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that you can help us sort this out, but probably we should uh, define some terms first and maybe let people know what is Messianic Judaism and what is the Hebrew roots movement and what what like what's the difference? Uh, these are two fundamentally different ideologies. So it, it's actually kind of laughable that that we would get lumped in with the Hebrew Roots movement. You know, I, yeah. I would define the Hebrew Roots movement as a movement of people from Christian backgrounds who draw from, you know, Hebraic sounding ideas and practices in order to add some authenticity or, or insight into their faith, you know, and, and typically this involves some kind of 
Torah observance, you know, especially relating to the the calendar or or food. But but at the mm-hmm. same time that they lay claim to these like Hebraic seasoned ideas, they reject some of the you know traditional Jewish ideas. They still hold on to anti-Jewish and replacement theology sentiment that they inherited from their Christian backgrounds. And so mm. this manifests in a couple of ways. You know, first of all, Hebrew roots groups will often deny the distinct status of Jewish people. And either they will consider themselves like spiritually Jewish by virtue of being grafted in, uh, or by going even further and espousing like a lost tribes type theory that makes them out to be like the true Israelites genealogically. Yeah. The second way that this you know, manifests itself is through a rejection of Jewish interpretation, you know, a villainization of rabbis and tradition, which, you know, ultimately results often in their practices taking very weird forms. One telltale sign of, of Hebrew roots is that they'll they'll often insist on pronouncing God's name in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And they'll also have some odd twist on the name of Yeshua, yeah. you know, turning it into like Yahusha or or Yahshua or something like that that has no basis in in Hebrew, in real Hebrew. Yeah. So then, it, you know, in contrast, you know, what is Messianic Judaism? Well, this is a movement of Jewish followers of Jesus who hold that following Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, doesn't transfer us outside the orbit of Judaism and the Jewish people. Um, And to take it a step further, there's a school of thought known as post-missionary Messianic Judaism that, Hmm. um, you know, embraces an approach that sees Jewish life and Torah observance as a matter of covenant fidelity for Jewish people. And it's it's at home within the whole Jewish world and Jewish tradition as it exists today. And it seeks to be a bridge between disciples of Yeshua among the nations with Israel, you know. And this is where we've carved out our spot. And, and we certainly have some unique perspectives to bring to, to Messianic Judaism. But but Messianic Judaism, the fundamental concept of post-missionary Messianic Judaism, that's our ideological home. Hmm. Aaron just mentioned the word bridge. Messianic Judaism is a bridge, and Hebrew roots is an island. Okay. Hmm. Messianic Judaism lives and functions today for sure within two worlds, between the world of what we would term traditional Judaism, I guess. That's not the best terminology, but but those Jews who do not have a connection with Yeshua as Messiah. And on the other side, the church. But I mean, and that's that also is no monolithic term. There's no such thing as the church. Oh, for sure. But Messianic Judaism lives, breathes, thrives, enjoys living to some degree within those worlds, being a positive connector between the two of them. Hebrew roots, and I want to be careful because I don't want to lump uh, all, quote, Hebrew roots people into this, this negative bucket, but on the whole, it's pretty negative, if I'm just going to be honest here. But it, it has created this um, holier-than-thou mentality that separates it from the church with accusations of paganism in the holidays and you know all, all kinds of things that aren't worth getting into, and separated itself from Judaism. That is the authority and the genius of 
rabbinic sources and, and millennia of Torah interpretation are rejected as man-made traditions. And Judaism basically has, has gotten everything wrong and the church has gotten everything wrong. But these enlightened Hebrew roots scholars have risen to the occasion and created what is the true faith. Yeah. It's dangerous. And I think at this point early on, I would also apologize almost hmm. for the damage that Hebrew Roots has done both in the church and in Messianic Judaism. I, there are pastors who pastors who lump us in with Hebrew Roots and sadly our own our own fellow sometimes Messianic Jews lump us in with Hebrew Roots at First Roots of Zion. That is absolutely not where we belong. I remember doing this podcast uh, years ago. And some of those ideas within some very limited number of, of voices within Messianic Judaism have made those accusations. And we invited some of those people to come on the podcast and they just they they rejected that. But it's it's yeah, I mean, that that solitary holier than now, we got it right. Everyone else has it wrong is Hebrew roots and Messianic Judaism, I think, certainly represents a beautiful bridge. And just to, to say this other point, Messianic Judaism's pretty old, like, you know, 2000 years old. It started a long, long time ago with this guy named Jesus who came along and had a, had a movement with Jewish disciples. And he, he was here to be uh, bringing the kingdom to Israel. And you had Messianic Jews who brought about everything that we see today in even within Christianity. Hebrew roots thinking is a absolutely modern movement of at the at I would say certainly 20th century and sadly over the last 20 years has gained uh, more traction because of things like YouTube and you know Anyone, anyone can be an expert on YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, let me add, um, very well said. And and um, generally, with with many of these Messianic Jewish leaders, we have a very good relationship. I, I don't, I, I don't want to give people the impression that that by and large we're rejected. I think Not many Messianic Jewish leaders are really close relationship with us and see us as part of their their work. And then beyond that, we've done an extraordinary amount of work, uh, possibly more work than any other Messianic Jewish organization to collect the writings and the stories of the founders of modern Messianic Judaism, you know, and to publicize and disseminate their writings. You know, we we feel a really deep connection um, and resonance with those, those Messianic Jewish pioneers from the 19th century and early 20th mm -hmm. century. They are our heroes. We're walking in in their footsteps and and to be honest i'm i'm afraid that when people are using that that ridiculous hebrew hebrew roots label to disparage and distance us you know maybe it's not in good faith you know <laughs> it's a it's a way to just uh to make someone the other um uh -huh. and uh, yeah. i hate to see that yeah yeah it seems it seems to me that when you pick up the word judaism you are picking up um you know 3500 years of tradition more more texts than um, any anyone could possibly read in one lifetime. I mean, there's just a, there's a whole framework there, 
And I think it's pretty clear that we are operating within clearly within that framework, right? Like when we talk about what relationship does a non-Jewish person have with the Torah, all the things we say about that are within a traditional Jewish framework because traditional Judaism also believes that that the Torah has a lot to say to a non-Jewish person, particularly, I mean, any non-Jewish person, certainly, but a, a lot mm-hmm. more even to say to a non-Jewish person who lives in, the, in like in the land of Israel, for example. So um, like those are our guideposts along with the New Testament and everything the apostles said um, for for this discussion. And yeah, I, it's hard for me to believe that some of these people don't know that that's our approach. Um, but, you know, we, we try to give people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> so that's, um, that's a very Jewish idea, actually, Jacob. To yeah, give people yes, the is. benefit of the doubt. <laughs> oh man, you know the, when I learned about the laws of evil speech, I had to I had to go back and regret a whole whole years of my life that I just flushed <laughs> right down the toilet. Um, I get it. So, so on a I, on a previous episode. We talked about how this idea that, that that Christians wrestle with, which is that we do um, say that the laws of the Torah are still in force, and we they think that makes us like Judaizers, because we say like, hey, if we say to a disciple of Yeshua, like, hey, like Passover is Jewish, but that doesn't mean it's it's not for you. You can you can celebrate the death and resurrection of Yeshua on its anniversary, which is the Jewish festival of Passover. Weirdly, though. There are some of these Messianic Jewish people have said the same accusation about us, which is that by telling a Gentile follower of Jesus, hey, go ahead and like join together with Jewish people and celebrate celebrate Passover, that we're we're breaking down the distinction between Jew and, and, and Gentile in the body of Messiah. And, and you know, being on staff, we talk about distinction all the time, and we've been harping on it for uh, forever. Like you know, it's I, and I think distinction theology is sort of one of our distinctives. Like like it's a core principle that we have. Um, and maybe you maybe you guys can articulate that principle for our listeners. Broadly speaking, what is distinction theology? Well, well, I'd say that distinction theology is a very straightforward, simple concept that there is Israel and there are the nations and that these definitions retain their integrity within the body of Messiah. You know, so Gentiles don't become Jews. They don't become Israel by simply believing in Jesus. And likewise, Jewish identity and the roles and responsibilities associated with it doesn't get erased by faith in Messiah. So thus, there remains a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Next. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Dis- First of all, distinction theology is is certainly not a new idea. Um, I would say Paul was a, a really good distinction theologian to create a, a term there. He had, you know, his, his famous rule his translations say, Paul, this is my rule for all the churches, right? In 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, and it's the, the only time he said that. Yeah. Paul was strong. He, you know, he wasn't afraid to to lay claim to a rule and to his gospel and his interpretation. And I, I've always appreciated yeah. that. He was an apostle. He 
was not afraid to say, I'm very loosely paraphrasing, hey, if you came into this this Yeshua thing as a Jew, stay that way. If you came into this Yeshua thing, this Jesus thing as a as one from the nations, as a Gentile, stay that way. What matters is observing the commandments of God. In other words, like, hmm. and there, there's a deep, deep discussion that that we can go into here, but we're we're talking about distinction theology. We're coming into this from different sides of things, and yet we're mm. serving now. Uh, you guys who were from the nations, you're you're serving alongside the Jewish people as children of Abraham, as as um, followers of the God of Israel. And so you need to know these commandments. Like you were, you were doing really bad things in temples to Aphrodite and all these other things. We're not doing those things mm-hmm. anymore. There's a new system here that you need to understand. And here's the best way to do it. See this Jewish guy here? He's he's a big brother. He's a guide. That's a calling that we've had since at least Deuteronomy 4 and other places. Be a light to the nations. And so Paul was saying, hmm. you're coming into this thing. Uh, and and follow these commandments. They're a they're the thing you need to do. But you do not become this. And as a matter of fact, just to go even further, this may be something we'd want to want to hit later on. If you do try to become this, then you're actually undermining the prophetic words of God that say there is a place for Jews and Gentiles, Jewish people, and the nations. That is distinct and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Paul even used the metaphor of a body, parts of a body, in terms in the description of, of Jews and Gentiles, and, and the, the whole, the concept that if you see yourselves as part of a body, you know, your eye doesn't get jealous of your mouth, your 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 foot doesn't get jealous of your ear. It, they all understand their distinct roles, and they care about one another because we're all connected. And uh, and so even though there's a distinction between each of your different body parts, you're not, you know, an amoeba or something like that. I don't know. We're still all together and united. And we and we use our distinctives um, to complete the whole. And that's that's the that's the the distinction theology in the New Testament. Yeah. You know, the the concept of one new man. Right. That gets fairly confusing. But but really what we've tried to boil that down to is this amorphous is the word, right? That's the word where it has no form and it's like an amoeba. Right. And when you read what's actually being said and taught, that's not at all what is happening. There remains these beautiful distinctions. Yeah, for sure. And this, by the way, we didn't, yeah, like like you said, we didn't come up with distinction theology. It's it, You can find it in Paul and it, it's very clear. But, um, you know, as far as does anyone else believe this, well, yeah, like when you look at when you look at Messianic Jews who have PhDs, ask them about that First Corinthians passage. They'll be like, "Yeah, they'll have the same exact interpretation we do." You know, for a long time in the church, it was forgotten. However, pe- people were realizing this as early as like the early 1700s. People were writing writing books and papers saying, "Look, there were Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, and the Jewish the Jewish ones kept on living Jewish lives and kept all of their their customs and commandments of the Torah and." And the Gentile Christians had a different role, like a different status. So, 
And then they got that from just reading First Corinthians. Imagine that, um, reading First Corinthians. Who has time for that? <laughs> so some of the First Corinthians passage is important. Um, some other passages that we've looked to and that, that uh, to help us form this theology are Acts 15 and Acts 21. And these are passages um, that maybe they, maybe our listeners don't know the numbers, but maybe they've heard of the events. So Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council where James and the 12 get together and Paul is there and they decide whether or not Gentile followers of Jesus have to convert and become Jewish in order to enter, like become part of the thing, part of the movement. And Acts 21 is this story of, of, of Paul coming back from one of his missionary journeys and having uh, suspicions lodged uh, with him about what he's teaching Jewish people in diaspora, Jewish people living in other countries, whether he's telling them, oh, you don't have to worry about the, the law of Moses anymore. So I thought I would put it to you, put the question to you, how do these chapters clarify the, the responsibilities of a Gentile disciple of Yeshua under the Torah, under under like Jewish law, vis-a-vis the responsibilities of a Jewish person under Jewish law? That's a good question. You know, um, there, and those are really a tr- pivotal texts for understanding the relationship of Jew and Gentile in the community of disciples. And it's it's hard for us today to put ourselves in that situation without bringing our our baggage of our current situation. You know, prior to, to Acts 10, and Peter's vision of the sheet, mm-hmm. the entire apostolic community would have would have assumed that Gentiles are completely excluded unless they go through the standard process of converting to Judaism and becoming Jewish, which yeah. entails not only circumcision, um, but also accepting the entire yoke of the Torah and its commandments. But after processing this, this realization, they realized it is possible, and and in fact, it's fulfillment of messianic prophecy for Gentiles to remain members of the nations, and as they as they turn to to Israel's God through Messiah, mm. they don't need to be circumcised, nor do they a- accept the obligation of the entire Torah that that Jewish people uniquely have. So then, the next logical question, of course, is <laughs> what obligations do uh, Gentile disciples have? Yeah. Well, what I find incredible is this is a 2,000, roughly, 2,000-year-old discussion, and we're still having it. Yeah. We're still talking about this. So obviously, when we talk about pivotal texts, these are, these are fairly important. It is, I guess, tragic is a word that more people cannot understand them from the true perspective of the early community of disciples and even Paul, that this was a miraculous event that was taking place. Miraculous event. Mm. As Aaron said, they, wait a minute, they don't have to convert to Judaism and, and somehow they're going to be accepted into this thing. And what was the question? Oh, wow. What are we going to do with all these Gentiles? Like that, that was the question. And so, you know, we could, we could back this up and now go into a, another discussion about Hebrew roots and what 
Hebrew roots as, well, let's erase all the Jewish people from the equation and we've got this new thing figured out. That's not at all what happened. There were some Mm -hmm. starting point guidelines established for this community of disciples of Yeshua who are from the nations. Yeah. Yeah. And so this question of like, what, what do they do? What, you know, this, and this was what they're addressing in Acts 15. What are they, what should they do if they're not supposed to take the yoke of the Torah? So they weren't starting from scratch. You know, the Jewish people have all have recognized for a long time that the Torah has in it um, several commandments that pertain to all of humanity. Um, For example, all nations are held accountable to the prohibition of murder which is something that was made very clear to Noah in Genesis 9. Yeah. But on top of, the, of these few universal laws, um, the apostles determined that, were, that there were four additional requirements to sanctify those believers from the nations. Hmm. Um, but they, they, made it, they made it clear that accepting the obligation to, to all the commandments in the Torah, which in their minds would be synonymous with converting and becoming Jewish— that's not uh, advised for these former idolaters. You know, it it um, it's been observed by by several scholars that that these four additional restrictions, you know, three of which relate to food, uh, one is re- relating to sexuality. They seem to be derived from the category in the Torah, as interpreted in Jewish law, of the resident alien um, or the ger toshav. Hmm. Yeah, let's jump into that because that this is found in Acts 15, I think, um, 28 and 29. The, the apostles lay down the law and they say, for, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit to, uh, and to us to lay on you, that is, Gentile followers of Yeshua, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, that's a food law, and from blood, another food law, and from what has been strangled, wow, a third food law, and from sexual immorality. And like you said, these are these are derived from the laws of the Gertoshav. But weirdly, weirdly, like really weirdly, because I don't think anyone really believes this, but really weirdly, <laughs> some people have thrown that verse at us and have said, that's it. That's all there is. There's four things, no more things, just four things. I don't know, two things good, four things better. What... Um, what I think the answer to that is obvious because the one of the laws that you mentioned that in Judaism applies to everyone, a murder, doesn't appear in this list of four things. So I don't know how how much explanation this needs beyond what Aaron has already given. But what would you say to someone who threw this verse at you or these two verses at you and said, Hold on a minute. There's only four there's only four prohibitions for a Gentile follower of Yeshua. It says it right there in Acts fifteen. Yeah, uh, well, the <laughs> the prohibition. I mean, I've heard people claim that that prohibition of blood is a uh, is a prohibition of murder. Um, I don't buy that. Yeah, but th- those four obligations really fail miserably as a standalone moral or legal code. You know. Yeah. It, it it seems pretty illogical that the Jewish community as a whole would be telling Gentiles like, "Don't steal and don't blaspheme God," but then the apostles would just turn around and say, "Oh no, don't worry about theft and blasphemy. You know, just just avoid eating strangled animals." You know. Yeah. Um. So majoring uh, on the minors for sure. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. For sure. Feel free to completely disrespect your parents and. <laughs> Covet everything your neighbor has. Those are good things. But oh, man. blood, no. 
<laughs> right. You know, on top of that, so so we have to at least apply Judaism's universal laws. Um, yeah. and, and on top of that, um, these Gentiles have, they become disciples of Yeshua, and that means that they have responsibilities to uphold his teaching. Um, and then, so, the, yeah. and you know, the New Testament is full of directives for Gentiles uh, applying that teaching beyond those four mm -hmm. things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like saying, well, the only commandment that exists for a follower of Yeshua is love, right? I give you a new <laughs> command, love one another. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how, how, how do we define loving one another? What is appropriate? Does that mean that I have, you know, polygamous relationships with, I mean, that's love, right? I mean, the Torah. Even more love, yeah. <laughs> the Torah defined, not to mention that he also said, you know, love God, love, you, love your neighbor as yourself. There, there's a lot of things. It's a, it's a ridiculous premise, of course. But, but the Torah, the, the instructions of God as a whole inform us about what it means not only to love one another, but also to live and thrive in a community, to, to be functioning human beings in a society. I mean, clearly it meant more mm -hmm. than these four things. And there's a particular place yeah. that that one from the nations, I want to also just quickly clarify, when we say Gentile, sometimes people assume some pejorative or negative association with it. Not at all. From the nations, from the nations. Hmm. There was a place that they could go to learn about more than just these four things, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think... Do you, um, do you know where that place yeah. was, Jacob? Do you know what it, it was called? <laughs> I think I do. Tell me. Tell me. Um, well, it depends what it depends what kind of Jew you are. It could be called temple or shul or the synagogue. And, you know, where else are you going to go? They, they hadn't built St. Peter's Basilica yet, right? I mean, there's no... Right. There's no, there's no First Baptist Church of Antioch that you can go to. Right. Um, and, and we get this idea, we get it from Acts 15, 21, which, is, which says, when James, I think, is talking here, and he says, we're not going to make it difficult for the Gentiles. And, but, it, but he says, um, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And the, the whole conversation is about Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. So in that context, we say, well, okay, so these four, these four rules eliminate some barriers to entry into a synagogue like you can't you there's certain you, you know there's a certain kind of person who's, it's they're going to have a tough time integrating into synagogue life because uh there's a lot of problems with their with with their lifestyle you know e eating food sacrificed to idols and so forth it's, it's like okay you don't you don't really belong here however once once that problem has been solved. We think James is saying, look, um, there's a way to learn the kind of life that the God of Israel expects people to live. And there's a source for all of morality, um, not, not just like things specific to the identity and practice of the Jewish people rooted in their uh, unique relationship with God, but, but stuff for everybody. And if you want to learn all of that stuff, we read through the Torah, you know, all the time in the synagogue, and that's where you can go. You maybe you can read, maybe you can't. Um, the Torah scroll costs fifty thousand dollars, but you can go. You can go to the synagogue every Sabbath, and you can hear it read out loud, and that's how you will learn 
within a Jewish framework, in a Jewish context, a Gentile can go and learn, well, what, what would the God of Israel ask from me? What are my responsibilities to the God of Israel? And, and that's a question that can be answered for disciples of Yeshua or Gentiles who aren't disciples of Yeshua or who in Judaism are called them Noahides, right? So this is how we interpret that verse in, in Acts 15.21. It makes sense to me. But there is a counter argument that has been lodged, which is that James doesn't put the word Gentile in that sentence anywhere. So maybe we could interpret this, this verse, Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, as maybe James is saying, well, just in case a Jewish person sees all these Gentiles joining this movement, this Yeshua movement, with, you know, the Outback Steakhouse rules, no rules just right, right? Um, that maybe they'll, maybe these Jews will be, become a little resentful. Like, how's come we have 613 commandments and they get four? So James must be talking about these, these Jews who will continue to go to synagogue and be reminded, you guys have 613 commandments. Don't pay any attention to those guys over there who got almost no commandments. You know, that their commandments are, are a rounding error uh, compared to yours. Um, but you have lots of obligations and that that's what James is talking about. That, seem, that explanation of that verse seems a little thin to me, but would you have any specific objections to that uh, interpretation of Acts 15, 21? I, I couldn't begin to see how someone could arrive at that conclusion. Just reading reading logically and knowing the, the context and the audience. And I mean, I, I don't even know. It's a little out there, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. way out there. Way out there. The PhD yeah. said that. Oh, I, I got oh, nothing. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I was not familiar with that way of thinking. Um, yeah. Aaron, there's a, there's a, um, I can't remember why I read this and I've read it in multiple places, but the, the summary is even when a person converts to Judaism, you, you don't then sit for the next 60 days of your life soaking in every single conceivable Jewish source that you can, you, you don't memorize the Talmud. You don't like, there's a process. And the, and the, the idea is sort of, it's not, it, the Didache says it to Gentiles in a different way. But what I'm pointing out here is that when you be, when you convert to Judaism, you need to take this at a pace. You need to, mm -hmm. to understand the magnitude and the weight of all that's going on. And you need to have Kavanah in some sense about your new role. You need to have your heart invested in this and learn, 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 learn. Don't expect that you're going to get it all right. And to me, that is such a beautiful parallel with what was going on for the, the Gentile community of Yeshua followers, that there is a place for you to learn. It can happen. Now, listen, you can't bring pickled pig's feet to the Oneg after Shabbat services, but you can come yeah. in and you can listen and you can learn. It, that doesn't seem far-fetched at all. That seems quite logical. Seems very reasonable. Yeah. When when someone converts to Judaism, I, I, as you know, they go through, you know, they spend a substantial amount of time learning and making sure that they're ready to make this commitment. 
But according to the halakhic sources, they're given a couple of mitzvot, a big mitzvah, a little mitzvah, you know, learn these ones. And when you go through that process, you're, you are considered like a brand new child, a, a newborn child. And, you know, that means you're a blank slate. You're ready to, to, to learn. And, um, same, same thing here. These were idolaters. They were, yeah. they were completely outside of the realm of Judaism, completely, um, uh, a clueless about what uh, monotheistic faith looks like, you know, you know, and and they had to make drastic changes in their lives, um, not just pickled pig's feet, but they had to think about throughout their entire life the things in their homes, the the, the their schedule throughout the day that all of those things are tied to the pagan life that they lived, and so it's a it's a an adjustment, and it's going to take time, it's going to take learning, and uh, it's it's not reasonable to have them fend for themselves in that way. Yeah, in the context of of their new environment as a disciple of Yeshua, I, I don't really know how much people understand about what they were giving up, Gentiles to become mm. to to associate with this idea of the Jewish Messiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and very clearly the to the exclusion of all other gods. This was a huge commitment, which could result in being completely ostracized from your family uh, to give up the family gods and to do certain things. Mm -hmm. This was a huge decision for these for these people. And I mean, where else could they go for support other than where the Jews were? to learn and to understand what it means to become in some sense, using this loosely, not that they become Jews, but they become a, a part of the family. And so there, there was no chat GPT to learn how to become a good <laughs> disciple, right? You needed to learn that from the people who were doing it who were all Jews. Yeah. Right. There, I mean, in Acts 15, there wasn't even a church you could go to. Right. <laughs> there wasn't right. even a home fellowship of Gentiles. There was there wasn't nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And when we and when we see Paul going from town to town, like what what does he find? He finds synagogues that have both Jews and Gentiles in them um, already. Already. And they hadn't even heard of Yeshua. They were they were already interested like they were. Um, that they we were attracted to the God of Israel. They they saw something there, a a better way of life, a a, a more coherent morality, you know, to to learn that they could be part of it, and not outsiders, um, and, but without having to convert. I mean, that was a huge deal, and then it was a it was a message that was widely accepted. Um, by the way, I think there's one thing that I think I should explain to the to the listeners. We, we we use terminology like convert to Judaism a lot, and you might go through your New Testament in vain searching for that terminology. Paul just calls it circumcision. Oh. It's a shorthand mm -hmm. term. When Paul says circumcision, he's talking about Jewish identity or he's talking about conversion to Judaism, taking on Jewish identity. He is not talking about surgery in isolation because that wasn't a thing. You didn't just go to have the surgery in isolation. It's a shorthand for the whole process. This is why this is widely known in academic circles, not too widely known like in the church. I didn't learn that until I read The Irony of Galatians by Mark Nanos, page 88 and in the next three, four pages. And I was like, oh, that now it finally makes sense. Yeah, right. That's an excellent point. Um, and and so the, the big debate is between 
what they what they you know call the circumcision party and and the others and the circumcision party's argument is to say no you do have to convert and become jewish um where paul is teaching these gentiles and this is like the subject matter of like most of the new testament all of his letters yeah. that no this is this is you don't have to do that and you shouldn't do that and here's how to live your live your life and then so what he talks also also about being under the law he means being subject to the torah as a jew um mm-hmm. and uh, and that clarifies so much of the new testament once once you see that <laughs> yeah circumcision party this is a this is bad terminology. <laughs> Being circumcised as an adult is no party. <laughs> as a as an as a eight day old child, you know the, the adults are partying. Right, right, right. <laughs> so oh so so strange. But it's again, it's it's a matter of when once you know the context and once you know how words were used back then, just just having that information gets you um, so far with the New Testament. Absolutely, absolutely. So now everything, the the pictures probably, I imagine the pictures clarifying in the minds of a lot of our listeners the difference between Jew and Gentile, and not having to take on the whole yoke of the Torah, and that there's going to be some things. The next logical step here is there's going to be some things that a Jewish follower of Jesus is obligated to do, and the Gentile follower of Jesus is not obligated to do. Like that's one of the practical, because it's not just a theological distinction. It's not just a distinction that we keep in our minds. It is, it, this is Judaism. Everything happens in real life in Judaism. So there's a, there are distinctions between the responsibilities of a Jew and a Gentile um within and without the body of messiah and uh, but sometimes sometimes we get some commandments where it seems like the lines start to get blurry and i would say one of those is is the sabbath because on the one hand the sabbath is um it's a remembrance of creation which happens to everybody and it's um you know but the, like again james says the Moses is taught in the synagogues every Sabbath. Where else are Gentiles going to go? Sabbath is going to become a special day, even maybe just because of that. However, the Sabbath is also said in the Torah to be a, a, a unique covenantal sign that's between God and Israel. So when it comes to these kind of commandments, where it seems obvious that there's, there's a universal significance or a universal component, however, there also seems to be a specific, even being called like a covenantal sign, and that's it's it's an inside thing. Like it's only for for Jewish people in some sense. What do we teach Gentiles to do with the Sabbath? I mean, I, we're not we don't teach Gentiles all the thirty nine prohibitions of the Sabbath day. But what do we what do we what do we say? What do we recommend to a Gentile Christian who's like, oh, the Sabbath seems important. Should I be doing something about it? Well. Uh, Exodus 31 says pretty clearly that the that the Sabbath is a unique covenantal sign for Israel. Um, and so we don't instruct Gentile di- disciples to observe it in the way that Jews are required to do. I want to be really clear about that. But, but, but not everything is either required or forbidden. You know, some practices are simply worthwhile and thus encouraged. And, and you know, and some are discouraged, but technically not off limits, you know. So if a Gentile is a Christian is eager to 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 engage in Shabbat in some way, 
you know, our job is to help them navigate, you know, what observances are, are fair game and, and what things to avoid. But before you can really see distinction in action, you have to also understand what it means for a Jewish person to be fulfilling their covenant responsibilities on Shabbat. And you alluded mm. to the, the 39 prohibitions, for example. You know, keeping Shabbat doesn't just mean that we we have our worship services on Saturday morning instead of Sunday. You know, yeah. the, the Hebrew word Shabbat means ceasing, and and it describes the way that God stopped when he finished creating the world, you know? So to keep Shabbat in the Jewish sense, a Jewish person then has to refrain from any kind of activity that exerts creative force on the world. You know, so mm. that that would mean we abstain from activities like building a shed, gardening, doing an art project, you know, or lighting a fire. And so traditionally observant Jews, that extends to a very fine level of detail that I'm sure would would sound totally absurd to most of our listeners. It doesn't it doesn't matter whether those activities are easy or or hard or enjoyable or unpleasant. It's all about the creative power in the act, you know. So for Jewish people to implement God's intention for Shabbat to be a sign between God and Israel of his creation, uh we're called then to imitate God by refraining from any kind of creative uh, activity from sundown on Friday um, until dark on Saturday night. Um, mm. So that's the Jewish way to do it. Um, but there's another way, another Jewish way uh, to make the Sabbath day holy. Um, and that other type of Sabbath observance is to add honor and delight to the day. Mm. You know, so you can do that through prayers and blessings and songs and, you know, through wearing nice clothes and eating tasty food on nice dishes, you know, so by taking time to take, take a nap, taking time out for a nap or spending time with family, you know, um, doing some Bible study, gathering with your community, those are the types of things um, you can do to, to make the Sabbath holy in an active sense. So, you know, our, so ultimately what First Fruits of Zion teaches about Shabbat and Gentiles is pretty much the same as what other mainstream Jewish movements teach, and that is that Gentiles shouldn't worry about abstaining from all creative activity, creative activities on Shabbat, and certainly not on a very technical level. Um, and that yeah. kind of observance is, is reserved for us Jewish people. Mm-hmm. I think I, I kind of think of it like a priestly service that we do um, on behalf of the entire world. Oh, for sure. Um, but if you want to take the day off of work, you know, you want to worship with your congregation, say blessings, have have fancy meals, that in no way invalidates or violates Israel's unique covenant. You know, it, it, in fact, it's a valuable thing to do, and there's blessing in it. So if a Gentile d- disciple says, you know, no thanks, and decides to go to work on Saturday, you know, that's his prerogative to do that. And, and it's not a sin. And the apostolic community didn't lay that uh, that burden on him. And that's that's what distinction ultimately means. Hmm. That, I guess, is a little bit of an apparent difficulty when it comes to the Acts prohibitions. It's like, well, you know, the Shabbat is not in there. So yes, you can say, a Gentile could say, it's not in there. I don't have to do it. I don't want to do it. Okay, fine. But as part of the community that you're now connected to, you're going to observe the beauty of Shabbat. 
you're going to see how the the Jewish community observes, remembers, guards, celebrates, honors the Shabbat. And I can tell you from experience, having been a Messianic Jewish rabbi for a while um, and interacted with many, many, many Gentiles and had this conversation many, 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 many times, it is almost impossible to deny the beauty of Sabbath observance when you have seen it celebrated and enjoyed. Not so much as Aaron mentioned, the I'll, I'll use the term with no disrespect, the minutiae of some of the traditional observances of Shabbat. I'm not saying that. I'm saying seeing Shabbat services and celebration and the prayers and and a Shabbat dinner and, and all kinds of things that are associated with it. So while we understand the, quote, obligation of Shabbat for the Jewish people, and sometimes that word can, can ruffle all kinds of feathers too, but there is an invitation. I also want to use that word carefully. It, this is one of the big 10, you know, the, the Sabbath. It's a, it's a big thing. It's the first among the things God called holy. It's a very big thing. And to exclude the nations from Shabbat is, I, I think, is almost cruel. Part of the Jewish obligation as they would have done in the synagogues in the first century, is to instruct, educate the the nations about the Sabbath and an appropriate connection to that for them. It's incredibly beautiful. I can tell you also, it's incredibly beautiful when Jews and Gentiles can gather together for some form of Shabbat observance. But, but, for us, as First Roots of Zion in particular, telling Gentiles, you better observe the Sabbath and you better do these things or God doesn't love you. No, we, that, that's just not even remotely close to anything that we ever say. Yeah. Yeah, well said. And I, um, the, the biggest takeaway from, I think, the mitzvah or the commandment of Shabbat, the biggest, most important idea in it is that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And so to at least acknowledge and say, hey, the seventh day of the week is Shabbat, that's an acceptance of monotheism. It's, an, it's, an, oh. it's a rejection of idolatry, which is, is an I- incredibly important thing for, for Gentiles to do. It's one of the universal principles of Judaism, that there is only one God and we serve uh, him only. Um, so uh, that aspect of Shabbat, I think, is 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 important, I think, even for Gentiles. Yeah, for sure. And I love that, Aaron, because, I mean, sometimes there is an accusation made toward Messianic Jews that we are telling Christians, you can't worship on Sunday. You can't go to your <laughs> church. You, you have to do this thing. That's actually a Hebrew Roots position. Yes, it is. Yeah, That's actually what Hebrew roots people say. Messianic Jews who are properly informed uh, say, feel free to celebrate that aspect of your tradition, which remains meaningful to you. But what Aaron just said, what about one thing on, on on the seventh day? What about one thing that you can acknowledge that says, this I'm putting aside 
for this day in recognition of God's choice of this day as uniquely special. I finished another book recently about rest and the importance of not being busy, and it was by an influential pastor who was recognizing in that the value of, it's always Sabbath, you, you don't often often hear the Hebrews, it's Shabbat, but the value of Sabbath in his family and them, them just stepping back from the world. That's a beautiful thing, both for his family, for himself, and an acknowledgement of the one true God and his desires for his people to rest. Hmm. Nice, nice. Uh, uh, if there's an irony with the message, the Hebrew roots message, that you have to move your services over to Saturday, and and that is that the the Bible itself and Jewish tradition never refer to Shabbat as the day of worship. It's not a day of worship. It's a day of holiness, a day of rest. And if you go to any city where there's a substantial Jewish population, and you go to an Orthodox synagogue on Sunday you will find them worshiping on Sunday and on Monday and on Tuesday <laughs> right. yeah. because there is there is no such thing as a day of worship because every day is a day of worship. Um, what's distinct about Shabbat is its holiness and its blessing and its rest. And so, so yeah, you go to church on Sunday if you want. Worship all you want. <laughs> More right. worship, the better, every day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you better worship on Sunday. Why You can't take a day off of worship. <laughs> exactly. That's, uh, that's why we're here. But... um. Yeah, I feel like you know having having had some some contact with uh, with with traditional Judaism, I, you know what Aaron said really resonated. As far as the Jewish people have this this priestly role that is very well defined, and every time something new is invented, Jewish people have to decide whether it's kosher for you know Shabbos. You know, can we do this on <laughs> on Shabbat? And um, because it's the law, like it's the rule, and it's it's yeah. very important that the line between permissible and forbidden activities on Shabbat is very clear, which is, which is, I think sometimes how we get to, um, you know, certain, certain restrictions that don't seem to make sense outside of that framework. But once you get into that framework, a legal framework where, you know, picking up sticks on the Sabbath gets you stoned to death, it's pretty important to know where the line is, which is why that it, it, it has to be clarified. Now, uh, traditional Judaism, like there's traditional Jews out there who are like, Telling telling Christians, God, I don't care. Do do Shabbos. In fact, it's great to have a to have a Friday night meal with your. Family. I think didn't Shmuley Boteach write a whole book about like get how how ch like churchgoers can enhance their lives by having dinner with their families on Friday night and taking taking a break on Saturday. It's like none of that is forbidden. Joe Lieberman too, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. So it's like okay, there's the as there's a line that you can cross as a Gentile in Sabbath observance, where you are erasing the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And that line right. is very, very clear. And you cannot cross it by accident. Um, you have to be trying very, very hard to, to, you're never going to accidentally keep the Sabbath according to like the, what, what a Jewish person had to do, because there's, there's like, Frankly, there are deep spiritual principles embedded in all of those things that may be worth learning if 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 someone has grasped the basics. But um, my point is that having a good day on Sabbath and remembering creation and 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 engaging in in um, you know something special or something extra uh, or even resting these are not forbidden to Gentiles. No one thinks they're forbidden to Gentiles. Like traditional Jews don't think that, um, and we don't think that. And and I, again, I think 
everything we're saying makes perfect sense within a traditional Jewish framework. Correct. And 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 you can find all of it, or at least most of it, out there in 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 a Shmuley Boteach book somewhere. So, um, not that we're aligned with him theologically, but or that he represents the very center of Jewish thought. But exactly. Um, but but we're not that as big an aberration as people might think. Correct. Yeah. So on the on the same or similar theme, and this is this is a little more out there than Shabbat because it does say in the Bible that God created the world in seven days, and that's, and that that's something that uh, that affects all of us in in some way or another. But um, there are some other dates on the calendar that commemorate very specific events whose whose significance really is Jewish. Uh, it's 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 a commemoration of an important event that happened to the Jewish people or in the history of the Jewish people. I'm thinking about Passover, the Festival of Tabernacles, um, the high holidays. You know, you could make an argument for Rosh Hashanah because I think it is, it's the, the anniversary of the creation of Adam, if I remember correctly. But right. uh, which but but it's like Hanukkah, you know, Hanukkah was Hanukkah was a thing that just happened with Jewish people, and um, that we get some pushback when we when we make a, information available to Christians as to how they can engage with these holidays, because again, it's look it looks like to some people apparently it looks like we're we're saying they're not J- Jewish holidays, they're everybody's holidays, and everyone should do these these holidays. Um, so where where do we stand on something like? Passover or Tabernacles? Why? Why do we? Why do we even talk about Gentiles celebrating these things if this is the Jewish calendar? Well, be, before we get into that specific question, I, I want to zoom out just a little bit to the big picture. Sure. The the interpretive shift that enables a Messianic Jewish perspective has enormous implications for Christianity, and once we acknowledge that Jews who follow Yeshua don't leave the orbit of Judaism and that Yeshua and his disciples and Paul were all teaching what they considered Judaism, you know, it raises paradigm-shattering questions about the whole endeavor of Christendom. And and I'm I'm not saying that we need to dismantle Christianity um, or to go back to the first century, you know, regardless of what the apostles' intent was, uh, from the beginning, or how Christian, how history should have played out. You know, now we have two billion people in a re- religion about Jesus that defines mm. itself against Judaism. You know, and the church leaders who in, instigated this divorce from Judaism, and they intentionally and they consciously discarded the Jewish calendar in rejection of the Jewish people and the Torah. Mm. And so, so. While Christians today might not think of their holidays as a, a practice of replacement theology, you know, that's really how many of them came to be. You know, Easter triumphs over Passover. Yeah. So let's do a thought experiment and, and imagine yourself as a Roman idolater in the like the first or second century. You know, your only calendar is the Roman calendar. Your holidays are are festivals of idolatry. You know, Saturnalia, Lupercalia, Vestalia, whatever. It, so you encounter the gospel and you decide to follow Yeshua, and you understand that that you know you don't need to become Jewish, but 
you know, should you keep on observing these these festivals to Roman gods? Yeah. You know, obviously not. Do, so do we have any calendar or holidays at all? So I, mm-hmm. I believe that the early apostolic community would respond and say, yeah, yeah, we have a calendar. We have holidays. Let's teach you about them and their deep spiritual lessons, which are, you know, rife with messianic revelation. You know, yeah. let us invite you into our spaces as we celebrate and observe it. You know, the apostles wouldn't have laid any obligations on them, but it's unthinkable that they would have told first century, you know, former pagans, you know, you observe whatever holidays you want. Just don't celebrate the Jewish ones. <laughs> right. To the point I made just a few minutes ago, I mean, you were giving up the life you knew. And, and part of those celebrations that the synagogue, that the Jewish people were celebrating, that was your new world. I mean, not that, again, we're, we're saying this a lot, but not that you became Jewish, but as a part of the family, so to speak, these are the things you do. And having spent time as Acts instructed in the synagogue, understanding the foundations from a from a Jewish perspective of Passover and also being able to, to overlay Yeshua, uh, Shavuot, obviously, between the commandments and the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, there was certainly a place for the Gentiles to have a deep connection to this. Again, I will say this, under the guidance of the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. That's the important thing that we have to keep in perspective. You cannot exclude the people that you that you invited into this thing, that, that God has invited into this thing and saying, sorry, do the do the Saturnalia thing. We'll we'll do this. You stay over there. That was exactly contrary to Paul's instruction. You are obligated to give up all of the idolatry and all of those other things. And we're not going to leave you in a vacuum. You can come along beside us and we'll teach you and you can learn. Yeah. And Jacob, you you brought up this idea that the holidays, you know, reflect Jewish experience. And, you know, many of the holidays have that basic theme. You know, they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Yeah. Uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the holidays are stories of Jewish survival. Mm-hmm. Now, to a Gentile, Jewish survival is worth celebrating. You know, for I mean, for example, with, with Hanukkah, yes, it's a completely Jewish event, right? If the victory of the Maccabees that we celebrate on Hanukkah had never occurred, there would be no distinct Jewish people today. Uh, y- Yeshua would have no no people to come to. There would be no mm. New Testament, and to this day, Gentiles would still be worshiping the pagan gods. <laughs> I think yeah. it's worth worth celebrating that if you're a Gentile. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. The plan, the plan of redemption of the world would have would have been canceled if if any of these holidays had not happened. Yeah, exactly. It's moving history forward toward the point where the Jewish people can take up that role as as uh, light to the nations. Um, mm. you know, and so so another example that you can then take, you know, that, that you can look at and consider is that in that future in the future when Yeshua establishes this throne in Jerusalem and rules the earth, all the nations are going to be celebrating the Jewish holidays. We see an example of this in Zechariah 14 in regards to Sukkot. So Mm -hmm. they're going to be doing it in the future. 
how are we to, are we supposed to say well it's not really kosher for for you to you know to sit in a sukkah on on, on sukkot it's like it doesn't it doesn't make sense yeah yeah it's now someone someone has said that um it wouldn't be feasible for all the nations like zechariah 14 says for all the nations to come to jerusalem because there's there's no room in the inn so to speak to which i would say you know the 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 talmud records quite a few miracles happening in and, and around the environs of the temple and one of those miracles is no matter how many people were in there they all had space mm -hmm. uh they always had space for everyone to do all the stuff that they needed to do so yeah, that's a consistent theme throughout the the Bible, you know. Even from Noah's Ark, you have something like that happening. You could even say, yeah. or the you know the idea that like you know in the presence of holiness, like space as we know it doesn't even really apply. And but at, but at the same time, you know, as the redemption progresses, we also see Jerusalem expanding. Um, so it uh, you know it it's, yeah. it is feasible. Look how huge the New Jerusalem is, according to you know Revelation twenty one. It's it's yeah. it's astronomically large. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to suggest it's a bit presumptuous to assume you know God's architectural and city planning abilities. Yeah. If God wants to host a very big party, he can He can do that. Yeah. Yes, he can. In, in, in any number of, uh, of ways. So here's, here's a verse that, you know, when I first read it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I had read it, but the, the first time I, I really saw it um, helped me understand some of this stuff regarding the festivals. And um, certainly we point to it over and over. It's 1 Corinthians 5.8, where Paul writes um, to Gentiles, or maybe to a mixed audience, but certainly it, it looks like he's mostly talking to Gentiles, um, given the problems they seem to be having. But um, he says, look, let us there celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now he doesn't say the festival of unleavened bread, but the metaphor falls apart if uh, it's any other festival. So uh -huh. uh, that's not a, a giant interpretive leap to say he's talking about the festival of unleavened bread, what which is you know cr chronologically um, is right there with Passover. So we say that this means Paul is telling Gentiles that they're they're going to be encountering in some in some way that doesn't erase the distinction between Jew and Gentile. They, they're honoring, celebrating, uh, uh, engaging with the festival, the festival of unleavened bread as part of their discipleship to, to Yeshua, uh, despite the fact that it is a Jewish festival on the Jewish calendar. Now, someone has said uh, and gave he gave I reasons or no J J reasons. He didn't use numbers and I can't count to J, but he gave J reasons that um that Paul wasn't um, talking about Gentiles celebrating the feast of unleavened bread, and one of the one of the re reasons he gave is that the previous verses Paul is speaking in metaphors. Casting out the old leaven is a metaphor, uh, meaning expel the unrepentant sinner from the community, and so forth. So celebrate the feast must also be a, a metaphor. Metaphorically celebrate the feast or the festival of uh, unleavened bread, meaning continually celebrate the meaning of Passover in our lives. Um, does that hold water for you? No. Explain your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Again, it's, it's, I, I have a hard time creating something out of nothing. 
uh, when when it seems as if the, it is so clear. I understand the Bible is a rich, deep, deep text that requires interpretation and thinking and thought. But sometimes the the writers say exactly what they mean. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. an amazing thing. You can read it and it and it makes sense. These Gentiles, Pesach, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, had an incredible significance now among this community of Yeshua followers. And oh, yeah. I mean, for them to not know the significance of this and have a connection to it seems incredible. Absolutely unfathomable. Not to mention, we talked earlier, I think, oh, Aaron mentioned about the early church fathers and councils making intentional declarations to separate Gentiles from the observance of Passover. Hmm. I mean, this is a thing. It's a thing mm-hmm. that was happening. And and there was a deep connection and affection to Passover. And yes, I'm sure that it was Yeshua-centered in many ways, but the whole movement was Jewish. So clearly there was a Jewish-centric focus as well. Mm. So I don't know how you get away from reading that literally. Right. And the whole argument raises a great point about the holidays. You know, they're laced all throughout the New Testament, not just in this one little spot. If you're not familiar with the Jewish holidays, a lot of the New Testament is going to be completely off limits to your understanding. You know, but but talking about Passover as a metaphor, look, in terms of metaphors, that whole holiday is metaphors. <laughs> Everything about Passover is a is a symbol, it's a reminder, it's a yeah. parable. Whether that's the matzah or the leaven, the bitter herbs or four cups, you know, whatever. They're all I thought I was literally eating (laughs) brick paste. I thought that that was. No, you got it wrong. Yeah. Sorry. But but Damien makes a great point that, you know, we know that the early apostolic community celebrated Passover, Pesach, Mm -hmm. because that's what eventually morphed into the holiday of Easter or Pascha. Over yeah. the next few, two and a half centuries. Yeah, and here's here's something I thought of too. I don't normally weigh in um, because you know I'm not I'm not the guest. In my opinion, please do doesn't truthfully matter so much. But here's something I thought of when I when I first read that. I thought, how how can you tell someone who has never been to a seder meal, who has never had any contact with unleavened bread, who doesn't know anything about it because they don't attend and they don't observe? How could you tell that person? metaphorically celebrate the meaning of Passover. What the heck do they know about the <laughs> meaning of Passover? They don't know anything about it. Like you can't you can't completely replace the concrete with the symbolic and lose the concrete because eventually you, you don't have anything on which to base your symbolism, right? I mean, to me it just it don't make sense. All I can say is someone wants to find a way to explain why Gentiles should not be a part of, of of any festivals and has done extensive work in finding things in the scriptures to support a position to the exclusion of a common sense, logical read. That's what I think. Or even a, a well-informed contextual reading, in my opinion. I mean, what do I know? I don't, I, I have a master's degree, which is worth dirt. You know what I mean? It's like, not true. Uh, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> it's a it's a big leap from there to uh, to the old doctorate. 
So um, I just have a couple of questions left and we're going to wrap this up. The the second to last, the penultimate question is um, when I think it's, I think it's important to ask, because this is one, this like in my, in my Torah club, we still get this question. Um, some of the commandments in the Torah, we straight up come out and say, hey, if you're a Gentile, don't do this. We talked about the meticulous observance of Shabbat according to what a, a, a Jew is obligated to do. And we would add to that probably laying to fill in or wearing tzitzit. And I think some of our critics maybe don't know this or choose to overlook it, but but we do say that there's there's some stuff that's off limits to Gentiles. What is the difference between those things, those commandments, and some of the other commandments that we say, hey, you know, uh, exactly as written, thou shalt not murder. Like, do do that commandment with no qualifications whatsoever. First of all, despite the topic of this particular podcast episode, it really needs to be said that the mission of First Fruits of Zion is not Torah for Gentiles. That's not right. That's not who we are. Our message is the kingdom of God, hmm. you know, the messianic kingdom. That's why we're messianic. You know, the a huge pr- component of the kingdom is Israel, the Jewish people, you know, living up to their calling as the, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that means faithfulness to the covenant, um, faithfulness to the Torah. You know, so the commandments sanctify the Jewish people by giving them a distinct way of life, you know? So believe me, if we could, as First Fruits of Zion, we would encourage more Jewish disciples of Yeshua to embrace the Torah. Hmm. Uh, by far, the primary factor that causes the, the blurring of identities between Jew and Gentile in the body of Messiah is not Gentiles embracing the Torah or having their, their worship services on Saturday. It is Jews failing to embrace it. No contest. Yeah. <laughs> But the reality is that 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 we're so we're seeing a lot of Gentiles who want to learn, and th- and this too is a kingdom reality. It's since you know the prophets talk about the nations coming up to Jerusalem to learn God's ways, to learn Torah, and so the question is, how do we apply a methodology that guides people from the nations and also preserves that distinct priestly role of the Jewish people? You know, so ultimately, it's pretty it's. Pretty simple. We can start with the, we talked about this before, but we start with the the set of commandments that that mainstream Judaism already recognizes as applicable to all humanity. Each of these is really a category with with many sub-applications. And then we have the four prohibitions in Acts 15, which seem to carve out that identity of the ger toshav or that resident alien type identity. And, And of course, that makes perfect sense because it's an existing paradigm of a sanctified Gentile right in the Torah. So we're we're in safe yeah. territory with that. So then in, in terms of then what do we discourage? Well, this comes down to commandments that are given to emphasize the distinct identity of the Jewish people. So especially mm. things that are referred to in the Torah as signs. So that, mm. that it in- includes the strict ceasing of all creative work on Shabbat. We covered that before, you know, attaching tzitzit, laying to fill in, and you know, well, even ceremonial circumcision is called a sign. So I, mm. I would also uh, strongly discourage Gentiles from dressing in a way that's a, a distinctively Jewish way or giving giving people the impression that they're Jews. But, you know, mm. so that's the, that's the framework that, that I think we can follow for 
you know, guiding uh, Gentiles into Torah in a in an appropriate manner. Yeah, it's a little bit challenging um, because I hear sometimes, well, you know, we, we've we've been adopted in the adoption language, and so we're. I, I've said multiple times a part of the family, and and there that that does ring true. However, uh, I want to provide this example: if a child is adopted comes into a family into a home clearly the the traditions and the celebrations and the and and the the rules and and parts of the of the household become a part of that child's life the father gives instruction let's say the big brother the big brother serves as a role model and an example to this to this younger boy in this case Okay, the young child does not then go into Big Brother's closet and wear all of his clothes all the time. They don't. They don't fit. They're not. The clothes don't fit. They're not his. They're not his clothes. Secondly, he does not. Then Big Brother has certain responsibilities and obligations and things that are his things to do. The 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 adopted son does not just come in and say, "I'm doing this now." I'm in, look at me. I'm I'm doing it, and so there is a distinction. It goes back to the beginning. Functionally, it's very very confusing to both sides of the equation when we see non-Jews, Gentiles, people from the nations deciding that they're going to adopt the sign commandments. People from the church have absolutely no clue what you're doing. Jews are very, very confused by what you're doing. And it just actually does, I would say it does a, a harm to the, to first of all, the bridge that is Messianic Judaism. And secondly, it does harm to our brothers and sisters in the Christian community and to brothers and sisters in the synagogue, uh, because it's, it's confusing. Yeah. You know, I, I think people have, um, the best of intentions, especially if they're brand new, they, they, you know, grew up going to a church or whatever, and they encounter a messianic synagogue. Um, the natural human tendency when you enter a new place is to look around and, and see what other people are doing and just copy them and try to fit in, you know? So, and you don't see what people are doing in their homes and their private lives and the moral and ethical aspects of Torah. Are, are they're not the first thing you notice. The first thing you notice is, oh, this, this guy's got strings on his, you know, hanging out of his waist. You know, I'm, you know, okay, that's what we do here. I'm going to do it, you know? And uh, right. they're very visible. They're very easy, easy to, uh, they're tangible, it takes a, a community that's got a framework that, to say, oh, Gentiles are welcome. Let us show you how to live. Let's show you what it looks like to have some families that are really comfortable and, and proud of their Gentile heritage. They're proud of the, the prophetic implications of what it means to be from the nations and, 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 uh, and brought near by Messiah. And they're, and they're comfortable in that. And they can, they can serve in as as an example. That's why we we need to cultivate that in our messianic synagogues, um, so that there there is something for somebody to look at and 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 to imitate and and uh, a model for them to follow. Right, and I, I I should be very clear. I may have sounded judgmental in my own way and in, in what I just said. I I didn't mean that. What you're describing, Aaron, I've always referred to as going native. Of course. 
you want to fit in. And so seed seed are a beautiful component. The commandments shall be ever before me. And I'm, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm messianic now, my, my Gentile brother says, and I want that too. So I'm going to start doing this. Well, there are some other really, really, really significant things that you, you can, what we might say, the even weightier matters of things like mm-hmm. let's love a neighbor as ourselves. Let's do a number of other things that, that you can do that are so valuable without having to instill the confusion of feeling that you need to fit in on that level. Because here's the great news. You fit in. You've been fitting in since the Messiah came resurrected. That is a part of the beauty of this thing that we call the the, the kingdom and, and our walk and our seeking it out. It's Jews and Gentiles. That much is very clear from the scriptures, functioning in our unique and beautiful, distinctive roles. Fantastic. All right. So one final question. Some of our critics within Messianic Judaism, again, of, of whom there are honestly not that many, have put a specific label on us. And that label is one law theology. And, it, mm. and a, sub, a subcategory of one law, one law theology, soft one law theology. I don't know. There's a his, there's a, that term has a long history and a whole lot of baggage. And um, we, we have set ourselves quite in opposition to the thing that calls itself one law theology. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, of course, we have the verse in our Bible also that says there shall be one law. We, but uh, so it it gets a little confusing because if you're not a, a subscriber to one law theology, it makes it sound like you think there are two or three or five laws, which we, <laughs> we don't we don't think that. Um, so maybe you can cut through the clouds and confusion and the murky, turbid water of this uh, set of terms, and tell our listeners. What's one law? What's hard one law? What's soft one law? And and why are we none of those? One major difference. It hurts a lot more to get hit by hard one law than soft one law. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> right on. You can you can make deviled one law out of hard one law. <laughs> Oh, that oh, yoke is un- that is that yoke is uh, too heavy to bear. I think. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we've lost it. <laughs> well, okay. Let's def- let's define one one law theology. Okay, one law theology um, that describes a perspective that all believers, uh, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are. Uh, equally obligated to to keep all the commandments in the Torah. In other words, that a, a, that Gentile disciples should keep the Torah the same way that Jews do. Um, and yeah, many years ago, first first fruits of Zion held a belief that like that a view like this. Um, but we saw the error in it, um, and at great cost, and at, at and despite enormous outcry from our our constituents, we corrected our thinking on it, and we've removed many books from our inventory, and and we extensively revised uh, others. And you know, once in a while, we still kind of find statements here and there in some of the resources that don't really reflect our current uh, perspectives. But but we're working on correcting those as well. 
So, so that's hard one law. Soft one law is not our term. It's a disparaging term that critics use to label us. Um, but at the at you know at the risk of uh, setting up a a straw man of a straw man, sort of. Yeah. I think what they mean by soft one law is this. Um, whereas hard one law says Gentiles are obligated to the Torah, soft one law will admit that they're not technically obligated, but then will say, yeah, but you really should keep the whole Torah. Uh, yeah. Keep it anyway. And, and, yeah. and that does not describe us at all. Um, rather, we do teach that the Torah has a message for everyone. Um, it's it's the foundational text of the whole Bible. But I think as we've made clear all throughout this episode, there are clear lines of distinction. And there are sections of the Torah that are exclusively for Jews. There are sections of the Torah, a- aspects of the, the commandments that um, are incumbent upon Gentiles. And there's all kinds of uh, gray area in between that it requires um, a thinking, discerning heart to, you know, separate out and uh and parse hmm. totally agreed a wonderful um definition of those two sort of ambiguous terms i would say hard one law is first of all anti acts 15 you could you could almost say it's it's heretical thank god we corrected our ways right mm-hmm. but you know, it, it is it is Hebrew roots. That's what hard. That's what one law says. And we, as Aaron just mentioned, we spent a lot of time here talking about why that's not correct. But soft one law. Interesting. What else would we want them to do? What, like, for instance, back to the first century, and and the the Saturnalia celebration, we tell Gentiles. You know what? This this thing, nah, you're not going to be a part of the festivals of the Lord and stuff. You need to go do those other things. Of course, there's an invitation once again to learn, to invest some time, to follow the lead, to understand. And so I think at First Roots of Zion, we do make space for the the world to understand the beauty of Torah of the Sabbath, of the festivals, of even some uh, aspects of Jewish tradition and and rabbinic discussion, all kinds of things. We make room for, for those who are interested in those things to educate themselves and even to participate if they are so inclined. We never tell you you should. We never tell you your faith is defective, or we certainly never tell people you have to leave Christianity because you have to come and do these things. None of those things. But I like to say that just as the early apostolic community was, was showing, educating, inviting these people into the beautiful ways of Judaism, of Jewish expression, of the calendar, all these things. We we do the same thing. And I think that Paul and Peter and Yeshua, I think they'd be happy that that we're doing a service to the kingdom. Aaron also mentioned the the Messianic Age and the festivals. And and we should just say, no, you don't get to know anything about that until the messianic age arrives in the world to come, then you'll be invited. No, 
we're doing that now. It's a it's a proleptic uh, look at some of the beautiful things that are to come. So I the the term is silly, I guess. I don't know. It's it's I think it's incumbent upon us, particularly as Messianic Jews. Aaron and I have the pleasure of being two Messianic Jews on this podcast. We're both also in education. We interact with a lot of Jews and Gentiles, and I think it is an honor and a privilege given to the Jewish people to be a light to the nations and to provide that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. D- Damien, I, you said it so well, and um, I think it really should be clear to the listeners that we represent Messianic Judaism and not Hebrew roots, you know, like, and in one of the callings of Judaism, you said, is is to be a light to the nations, to pr- provide guidance for the nations. Um, and if you're not doing that, you're not really doing Judaism the way it uh, is described in the Torah. Uh, that's just the reality of it. So the fact that we're reaching out to Gentiles and guiding them and how to understand uh, the Word of God is really, really important. It's important for us as Jewish people and as a Jewish organization, and it's a part of what makes us messianic. That's a, a big aspect of this proleptic, this foretaste, this enclave of the messianic reality that's uh, going to come upon us very soon. Well said. Yeah, the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be a kosher meal, and you don't have to know if you're a Gentile, you don't have to know all the prayers, but you should know when to say amen, right? <laughs> exactly. You should know something. Right. I'm incredibly thankful for the position that Hashem has given First Roots of Zion within Messianic Judaism. We have phenomenal relationships with incredibly brilliant thinkers and and writers that are engaging the world over with Christian community, with with academia, with all the Jewish community, phenomenal relationships. And I am so proud to be a Messianic Jew affiliated with First Roots of Zion and with all of these great thinkers. And I want to be clear, I may have made some snarky, snide comments about some of the interpretations you've mentioned. I certainly don't claim to have every answer. I don't think First Roots of Zion claims to have every answer. But I hope that this podcast articulates uh, very clearly our some of our theological understandings, which I think are biblical. I think they are founded in, in the apostolic writings and our hearts behind that theology which is certainly about community and union of the believers and, and of, the, of the disciples, the followers of Yeshua, both Jew and Gentile. Well said. Well, that's all the questions we have time for on this episode of Messiah Podcast. Um, thank you so much, Aaron Eby, Damian Eisner, for joining us today and, and giving us so much more clarity on all of these, frankly, fascinating topics. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk with you. Yes, indeed, Jacob. I'm gonna go. Ha- I'm gonna go have a, a uh, egg sandwich right now. <laughs> oh yeah, is that a hard egg sandwich or a soft <laughs> egg sandwich? <laughs> that one's that one's gonna stick in my mind. It was great to be here. Thank you guys. I love and respect you both. Time to beat it. <laughs> <laughs> one more for the road. Love it. <laughs> 
Well, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea